Thank you very much. It's Terry. And I want to thank uh, Damien and uh, the other gentleman who had short-term memory loss already <laughs> who asked me to come and speak today. This is a great meeting. I mean, oh, you really want to know? He just told you. <laughs> I'm Rex. I'm an alcoholic. I'm from... Gosh, that used to spook me at early AA meetings because I was paranoid. And when the group would speak out, I would just freak out. I was ready to go. And so I see that some traditions are still in place. And so, um, but I'm very happy to be here. How many people know where Highland is? Yeah, there's a spattering of people. Right up, if you, if you're going up to Big Bear and right at the base of the San Bernardino Mountains, right next to San Bernardino, by the 330 highway is Highland. Okay, that's where Highland is. And very beautiful place. Get to see the mountains every day. And, you know, I'm happy, like the gentleman said earlier, to be on this side of the podium and to be sober today because my life is, is so much better uh, in recovery. If, for those who are interested in sobriety dates, uh, my sobriety date is March 29, 1994. So that puts me at about 21 years. Not that it really matters. To uh, I'm more impressed with the people. The people today that took one year, that's, that's the miracle. I mean, to get up there and take that one year. And to uh, those who took their one year tonight, uh, it's, uh, let's see, Christy and Robin. Fantastic. You, you told my story. And it's really nice to see the light in their eyes. You know, that light comes on. I didn't have any light in my eyes when I got sober. I was just really in bad shape. And it's, I call it seeing the miracle happen. And early on at AA meetings, people would say, don't leave before the miracle happens. I hated all those AA sayings. They just rather upset me. I was pissed off. As a matter of fact, uh, in my group, they uh, lovingly know me as the angry black man. And so... (laughs) And it used to piss me off when people didn't know I was black. That even made me more angry. <laughs> I remember being at a meeting about one or two years sober. And I'd been going to this meeting probably two or three months. And a rather dark-skinned black man, you know, a very nice gentleman, came to the meeting. And a guy says, oh, it's so nice to have black people here. And I said, what the heck's wrong with me? I've been here. You know, it's like... I guess I had lost my afro by then, so I just couldn't tell. <laughs> Isn't it cool we, we laugh today? Well, I know, and I know this in my heart, that there are those who are sitting in this room tonight that they're probably not laughing. And, they, and they're saying to themselves, this sucks. You know, why am I here? You know, whether they got a nudge from the judge or they just ended up there, rehab brought them. But I guarantee you there's some, probably some folks here that'd rather be somewhere else. And I'm going to just like, uh, was it Dave? Dave is a fantastic 10-minute speaker. Let's give him a hand. You know, What a story. As I was listening to you, Dave, I knew you were Catholic when you said you had five brothers and sisters. <laughs> a lot of Catholics end up here. I'm Catholic. And so Pope wouldn't be happy with me, but that's... That's the way I was raised. But and it's just really cool, you know, to, to see the light come on. But for those people who don't want to be here, you're in the right place. Because you're at the fork in the road. 
And the other road leads to, and it says in chapter 3, jails, institution, and death. I call two sets of promises. There's a new freedom and a new happiness, and then there's jails, institution, and death. And yet, if all the people that came to this meeting who held their hands up and stood up as newcomers stayed, you probably need to be over in, at uh, Friar Stadium or at Petco. Because, you know, how many people stood up and took the 90-day chip? By the way, congratulations to the gentleman who did. 90 days is a long time. It's a long time. And so um, I, I can vividly remember being in rehab and sitting there in really bad shape. And there was probably like 20 of us sitting in this, you know, they always sit you in chairs around a room. And the they were having a coin-out celebration. Some guy had gotten 28 days. And I'm like, how in the heck did he stay sober for 28 days? And the answer was they kept him locked up. Because... <laughs> By the way, Barbara, congratulations, 25 years. That's a wonderful, and you're such a beautiful lady. You know, you just exude, you know, freedom and happiness and love. And that is such a wonderful thing to see because it's, uh, it's you know, we come from such tragic backgrounds. And to see that smile and to, to see that you've stayed here 25 years, absolutely remarkable, remarkable. Congratulations. But the funny thing about the guy who had 28 days, believe it or not, he was back two days later. He was back two days later. And, but to me, 28 days was a long time. So 90 days is a really long time, especially when your head's talking to you. It's like uh, I was driving down, and obviously I came by myself. The entourage couldn't be here tonight. And, <laughs> and so um, I had lots of talks with my committee. And everybody, see, mm, my committee is active 24-7. And my committees have subcommittees and subcommittees that go with that. And they always have something to tell me. But the cool thing that I identify with when Dave was sharing, and it's the language of the heart that he was sharing with, which is so beautiful. He said that, ah, that moment of serenity, that peacefulness, that he felt all right. Because if you're like me, you never felt all right. That's why I always had to chemically change things. So I was born an Air Force brat, Northern Air Force Base. And uh, my father is from uh, a little place called Etabina, Mississippi. Most of you have never heard. Anybody ever heard of Etabina? You, you have. And so what do you know about Etabina? Yeah, well, guess what? B.B. Uh, King is from Etabina. And Robert Johnson, the famous blues guy who allegedly sold his soul to the devil, uh, he recorded the song uh, Crossroads. And the bridge where the crossroads is is right outside of Etabina. And so it's an interesting place. My mom was born in New Orleans, and everybody knows what reputation the Big Easy has. And so, uh, but she was raised in Mississippi. My mom's mother died when she was five years old. And so she was sent to live with um, her grandmother, her maternal grandmother. And oddly enough, uh, the maternal grandmother's husband, whose name was Papa, Papa was an alcoholic. And uh, she had kicked him out. He only got to come stay from time to time. But that's where I come from. I come from a, 
a family that I had, um, I have one brother, two uh, full-blooded sisters, and a half-sister that's in Chicago. And I tell you, it's really, um, my mother, the most beautiful woman in the world. I was really blessed with just a loving woman. And she had, she was instrumental in my recovery, okay? She couldn't get me sober, and I'll tell you why in a little bit, but she was instrumental. And I'm thinking about her now because she's no longer here, you know, And but I feel her right here. And so I have a feeling that she's smiling because, <clears throat> you know, the late bloomer child that she had that she always had to say rosaries for and, you know, stay up praying all in the, in the middle of the night, he ended up okay. You know, when she left, she left knowing that she didn't have to worry about me as long as I was staying sober, and I was sober. And that was the best, the very best gift that I could give my mother after all she gave me. So anyway, it was a, a bit difficult. My dad grew up in Edabina on a sharecropper's farm. And for you young people, you probably don't know what sharecroppers are. Sharecroppers were people that were, they basically leased or rented their land and they had to get all their supplies from a guy who had a commissary, usually the guy that owned the land. At, and it was like going to the pawn shop and borrowing at 30 or 40 percent. And you had to share your crops with that person. And so you never made any money. You really, you made maybe enough food to feed your family if you were lucky. But uh, it was a life of poverty. And my dad's uh, dad, my grandfather Emmett, he was uh, an angry black man. <laughs> and... <laughs> It's because he didn't look black. Uh, his father was white, mother was black. And down there at that time, which is probably the early 20s, um, in the South, that wasn't smiled upon. And so you were either black or you were white or you, was a, you were a mutt or a mulatto or a half-breed. And half-breeds were kind of almost like alcoholics. We didn't fit in. And uh, typically, that's a, something that's hard for people to deal with. So he was a very angry man, Emmett. And um, I think he was pissed off the first time he saw me. And I'm glad somebody left. <laughs> but this, the sad thing for my father is that he didn't have a good family life, and so he terrorized us. He absolutely terrorized us. And I remember being, you know, preschool. They didn't have... Uh, head start or preschool back then, but uh, staring down the barrel of a gun, and he was telling us he was going to kill us. And uh, just, I couldn't, I didn't figure it out till years later what that did to me. I knew that I was scared all the time. I didn't want to come home when I started going to school, and it was hard watching my mother, you know, take beatings. And uh, it was just very difficult. And there weren't battered shelters home back then. Uh, women didn't have the options of going to a shelter to find relief. They didn't have the laws on domestic abuse, so my mom had to take it. And we got to watch it, and we got to suffer from it, too. And eventually that, over a period of years, uh, led to all kinds of anxiety with me. It also led to, you know, this one thing that was, when we talk about incomprehensible demoralization, most alcoholics will refer to it as when they bottom. For me, it related <laughs> really to my bottom because I was a bedwetter. And uh, for years and years and years, I couldn't figure out why 
I was wet in the bed. And it was like anywhere we traveled somewhere, my parents, you know, my mom would sound like, oh, I hope you don't do it again. And <laughs> it was what happened was when I went to sleep, I said, ah, oh, just let go. But it was demoralizing as a kid walking around having that secret. You couldn't tell your friends at school, hey, guess what I do? <laughs> hey, you, yeah, you got a little leaking problem too? <laughs> it just doesn't happen that way. And so I went through life. Uh, there were good times. Playing Little League Baseball was great. My brother and I were very good baseball players, and we had some good times that way, but we always had to come home, and we didn't know if the old man was going to be angry and taking it out on my mother or us. And so consequently, uh, over time, I got to the sixth grade, and in Catholic school, that's where I basically... Uh, found the freedom of the bottle. And because, and I think this guy, Ricky Luna, they had a neighborhood store in San Bernardino, and he could, Ricky could sneak out quarts of, I think it was Brew 102 or Paps Blue Ribbon, whatever the cheap beer was. But And as little kids, we'd find us all over in the yards drinking. And that gave me that, ah, oh, didn't matter. Didn't matter. And as I got into, like, uh, ninth grade, there was a guy, Larry Berryman, at junior high, ninth grade. We went seventh, eighth, ninth. Larry Berryman, I walked in the, uh, to the bathroom one day. All these guys are in there, and they're just giggling like crazy. And they've got a Listerine bottle. And I said, well, Listerine? They're like, mm-mm. And Larry worked at a liquor store. So he'd figure out how to, to get some whiskey out, and he just got these giant Listerine bottles, and we all started getting drunk regularly. I'd be an algebra drunk. <laughs> Teacher didn't know why, but we were just drunk. We'd be laughing and just having a great time. and So I became a rather early, regular drinking. All through high school, I drank. It's amazing I graduated. Summer school saved me, I think. And I always kind of found myself running to the bottle. Now, I did other things, and this is a meeting of AA, and so I don't have to get into that. But uh, put it this way, it's like I could probably qualify for an advanced degree in chemistry. At least street chemistry. Because it had all and everything to do about feeling different. I didn't like my being in my own skin. And I know there's some of you out there that are experiencing that now, and some of you who have experienced it, and it's behind you, or you're still dealing with it from time to time. And I heard these things in AA meetings early on. They were talking about being comfortable in your own skin. I was like, yeah, 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 whoop de doo what's that? And... Um, but I know what it means today. It means that you can accept life on life's terms. And I didn't like my life. Uh, I went through adulthood not liking my life. And um, every job I had, it revolved around, like, getting to happy hour. Happy hour became, uh, instead of 12, it became 11, 10, 9, first thing in the morning. And um, just all through my life, I was uh, one of these people that the when they were letting me go from jobs, the conversation would go is like, you had so much potential. And they were like, we can't figure you out. And I was like, well, I know what's going on, but I can't tell you. Okay? I, it's like when it comes to getting loaded, I'd rather get loaded than work. You know, I'll work, but eventually I can, you know, let me get over and so I can get the happy hour. Happy hour is much more important. So anyway, I went through life, and 
at the age of 28, son was born. I was happy, joyous, and free as a single man to a certain degree because I didn't have any responsibilities, and this little guy pops into my life. And I remember uh, I received a letter in the mail. I'd stopped seeing his, girl, his mother. And I received a letter in the mail, and there's a picture of this little beautiful little child. And I started thinking back. I said, who was it? <laughs> it's like, uh, what's it? no, 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 no. Oh, but holding this little child, I looked at him and I said, I'm your dad. I'm going to take care of you. And uh, I knew at that point I had made a commitment, and commitments weren't my thing. And um, for the next 10 years, his first 10 years of life, I still had to deal with my disease. And it was an awful thing because when you're a father, and you're trying to be a father to your child, and your disease, you know, it comes up and the committee starts talking, hey, it's like, hey, the kid, get him some cheap tennis shoes, you know, you need you need to re-up. Um, uh, take him down to the thrift sh- shop and get him some clothes because, you know, you need the money for your habit. And all these issues, but I love this child, and all of a sudden I started thinking, mm, maybe I need to uh, alter my behavior. And that's a very difficult thing if you don't have a program. I didn't have a program. Um, didn't have a clue. I mean, I was chapter three. Uh, I won't drink. I'm just going to smoke weed. All right, I will not smoke weed. I'll just drink uh, uh, wine. And I won't drink a hard liquor. And uh, I'll only drink on weekends. And um, I'll, only, I'll wait for him to go to bed. And all you who know, parents know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, so... When that was apparent that it wasn't working, and what happened, in about 1989, my son came to live with me full-time, and he was uh, in the first grade. And my son is named Anthony. He's the most beautiful son. I, I just love him to death. He's, he's everything to me. And Anthony uh, was a little guy, and we were in Los Angeles, and I remember uh, saying, okay, Anthony, it's uh, dark, so it's time for you to go to bed. <laughs> and it was meant that it was time for me to get loaded. And um, I sustained an injury in 1989 to my spine. And as a result, my son and I moved back to San Bernardino, and we moved in with my mom. Now, the worst thing in the world to a guy like me, and, to a, and a lot of guys will understand this, is to be almost 40 years old and living with your mother. That's the sign that where you used to see women walking down the street. They don't even know you're living with your mother, but they're doing this to you. <laughs> Loser. <laughs> so, but uh, on and about that, I had started trying to modify my behavior and change my habits by uh, church experience. Because I'd see preachers on television, hey, if you're such and such, if you got a problem, put your hand on the TV, come down here. And I got involved in these... I got involved in these ministries, and, um, you know, they I would be in there, and, and all of a sudden, the altar call would come. You know, the music comes on, you know, the organ player, and the preacher says, if you have a problem with alcohol, you know, just come on up, and we're going to love you. And so I'd be looking around saying, hmm, and I'd get up and go up there, and it, people would pray for me, and, and uh I always feel good for about a day or two, and 
just I didn't have a program. It, uh, nobody told me how it worked. <laughs> so I was stuck with me. And so I know what I need to do. I need to, I don't feel good. I need to feel good. So I would end up, you know, going to the services, uh, praying for people. And I even became a, a, uh, lay, a lay minister. And I would be speaking in tongues for people. And um, I don't know what I was saying. <laughs> but I, mean, I wished them well. <laughs> but funny thing, it just didn't work. But all those altar calls, they, where they would stay, if, if they'd have all the, the seven deadly sins. And it's like, oh, are you a fornicator? And I was like, oh, God, no, not that one, too. And <laughs> every single one of them, it's like all these altar calls, I had to keep getting up. <laughs> Think, hey, newcomers, they don't do that here. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm sure you'd be walking out the door. Maybe. But anyway, the, um, what I found was that, it, again, I didn't have a program. Nobody was sharing with me how to get rid of that unease, get rid of the garbage and stuff. So one night, I'm on this weekend, I'm on this retreat, and they're like, okay, it's bury your soul night, okay? Everybody was getting up and giving their testimony. And the testimonies were warm, and they were wonderful, and people hugged, and they cried, and, you know, they, they, it was a joyful thing. I got up there and bared my soul. And, man, folks walked the other way. <laughs> I started going to church, and there would be like four or five empty seats, you know, next to me. And uh, women with young girls, they would be moving them and stuff. Uh, and I'd look around. It's like, hey, nobody's sitting next to me. And I felt awful. I'm going to tell you the truth. We're laughing. I felt awful because I'm like, hey, I bared my soul. I did this, what we call a fourth and fifth step with these people. And, and they decided that, you know, I wasn't worthy of their love. And so, again, I was left to my own devices. And the committee, the committee says, don't worry, Rex, I got your back. You know, we're with you. you know, we're just going to go back to happy hour. Okay? And... So, being a chronic pain people, and anybody's in this room that's suffering from chronic pain, my heart goes out to you. But you can, you can deal with it one day at a time. And I learned that in these rooms, okay? Because there are people actually that are going worse, going through worse stuff than I'm going through, you know. But it's no fun having chronic pain. You know, my legs hurt right now. But uh, the bottom line is, is that, you know, getting uh, getting to the point where you start dealing with with alcohol and everything else you can get your hands on to do with chronic pain, you're going to end up probably like me. And one night, after being in all the wrong places, I uh, ended up in a psychiatric ward. Uh, it's called Ward B at St. Bernardine's in San Bernardino. They didn't have a drug rehab unit. So I got to be in with, with real interesting people. And uh, these were 5150 cases. I think I was a 51, 51 and a half. I don't know, because I volunteered. And uh, I remember him taking my belt from me. I remember him, you know, taking away everything. Because I said, hey, I'm ready to kill myself. I was there. Didn't like life. Got a 10-year-old son. And I'm like, maybe mom can take care of him and my sisters. And he's better off without me. And I remember hearing this golden earring song where they kept saying, you're on your own when the bullet hits the bone. And I said, yeah. That's right. 
And I said, no, no, gun's going to be, nah, I mean, it's like maybe ramming into a freeway thing, a tree or something. It, it, it's weird what the committee shares with you when you're getting a consultation on suicide. <laughs> <laughs> but I decided that, okay, uh, this check into this hospital and, and being in there with uh, crazy people was really interesting because I saw people who were not going to get well. They had conditions that were not repairable. And I said, you know what? I do. But the funny thing is, after they took my belt and after they took things that I couldn't harm myself, and I was like, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I'm in a safe place. The committee said, hey, wait a minute. You just told them you weren't going to drink and use anymore. What's wrong with you? And that's, I'm serious. That conversation, I'm like, Oh, man, how can I get out of here? And, well, seven days later, they moved me over to a chemical rehab place called Nowood in Riverside and proceeded to start this recovery thing. And I went in there on a Friday. I think it was December 7th. I'm not sure. 1993. And they, I got settled in. person comes to my room and says, we're going to the AA meeting. Would you like to go tonight? And I said, no, thank you. And they said, that's okay. And I sat back in my bed, and I was like, hey, this rehab thing is pretty cool. Hey, that you um, make choices here, and that's all right. The committee gave me the approval for that, too. And so they said, that's right. Don't go to that AA meeting. Because oddly enough, I had went to an AA meeting about two months earlier, two or three months earlier, with a girl that I used to get loaded with in the streets. And she had went into a place called Cedar House, and she took a 60-day trip. She didn't have any family, and so she invited me to that AA meeting at the Serenity Club in San Bernardino. And I went to it, and I was like, this sucks. The lady who was leading the meeting was smoking a cigarette, and she had an oxygen tank hooked up to her. I said, these are some real bright people. <laughs> I kid you not. And, <laughs> and then, you know, they held hands at the end of the meeting, and they all started chirping at the same time, you know, taking a trip, not taking a trip. And I had enough chemicals in me and alcohol. I was paranoid, and I couldn't wait to get out of there. And, you know, holding hands at the end of the meeting with all these sweaty palms, it sucked. And I proceeded to leave, and I went out and got loaded. That was my first AA meeting. And oddly enough, uh, that it was a Saturday night just like this. And they, the next night, the people, they said, you're going to an AA meeting. I'm like, huh? Yeah, you're going. I'm like, no, 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 you're going. So they put me in this little white van with everybody else. I remember sinking as low as I could into the seat because I didn't want people in cars to see me. There was no markings on it, but I all knew that. I said, they all know that we're losers. And the committee said, sink. <laughs> Get to the meeting. And it's just like this meeting. You know, they had the literature guy, they had coffees. You know, people greeted you at the door. They didn't give out tickets, man. I was a little bit jealous of that. You guys got a ticket thing going on here. But the at that meeting, I remember at the break... I went as far away in the parking lot to get away from people. And I was like, oh, gosh, this is horrible. And this young guy named Andre comes up. He says, hi, I'm Andre. I'm an alcoholic. And I was like, damn. Don't you not want to be alone? 
And he was smiling. He looked happy. And I was like, you people are happy? <laughs> and I wasn't. But he reached out. And I started going to Saturday night speakers meeting. And the Saturday night speakers meetings were kind of cool because the speakers told funny stories. And it wasn't so much like the book study meetings or some of the other meetings. And, and it was uh, something that I could sit through for the most part. But I would go to AA meetings other than at Saturday night speakers meetings, and I would count the dots on the floor. I would count the bricks if they had bricks on the wall. I would, If they had stucco, I was counting the stucco. And I did not care about what people were saying because I wasn't happy. I didn't want to be there. Didn't want to be there. In the meetings that I got to share, big meetings, I'd get up and say, oh, AA is wonderful. I love this place. You know, I'm spiritually happy. You know, coming up on 90 days, happy as all heck. Just wasn't the case. I hated it. Absolutely hated it. And uh, I would share at small meetings. They'd say, would you like to share? Yeah, I'm Rex. I'm an alcoholic addict because I knew they didn't like addicts at that time. I made it a point to say addict. I don't want to be here. Didn't like smoking. They had these at the Eric Club in San Francisco. You know, I put this little sign up, no smoking this table, and a guy would come sit down and start smoking. Wanted to smack the fool. What's wrong with these people? Don't they understand? I don't want to be here, and you're going to smoke next to me too? I felt like smoking him, you know. And people from the streets know what I'm talking about. So anyway, uh, I, I just hated. I would leave AA meetings early on, and I would go get loaded. Because the committee told me it was all right. Say, hey, this thing sucks, man. It's like, let's go out. But I knew it wasn't working. I knew it wasn't working. I felt the incomprehensible demoralization of my 10-year-old son while I was in rehab playing his first basketball game and daddy wasn't there. That ripped my heart out. That ripped me. It's like, how can you not be there for your son? And when I got through with the rehab stint, I remember sitting down talking to my son. I said, son, your dad's an alcoholic, and he's got a drug problem. Ten, my 10-year-old son. And my son just hugged me. Uh, whew. It's still it's humbling. It's very humbling. But anyway, I kept going to these meetings, and all of a sudden I started hearing things that made sense. Hmm. And those promises sound pretty darn good. You know, that fourth and fifth step, say, that sucks, man. I did that in church. I ain't going down that road again because they won't sit next to me. <laughs> but I found a sponsor, and I found a, and this is where my mother comes in. My mother had been secretly, how dare her, going to a gentleman by the name of Father Jerry at one of the local Catholic churches, and she knew that he was a recovered alcoholic, and she said, can you help my son? And she she asked him more than once. And I remember going over to the rectory, knocked on the door, then he opens the door, and he's kind of like, come on in. And we got to sharing, and Father actually became a big part of my life. And I was able to get through the steps with Father Jerry. 
And uh, that fourth and fifth step, let me tell you, when I did that with him, and the cool thing about doing it with a priest is that he's sworn to confidentiality. <laughs> he ain't going to tell the police. <laughs> he ain't going to tell my friends. I'm not going to tell the neighbors. And when I got through, he was kind of like, and you have to understand that priests hear the worst in confessions. So what I told him was boring. He said, is that it? I was waiting for you to share something with me. <laughs> is that it? You know, it's like, and you know what he told me? It was all said and done. He said, you need to learn how to love yourself. I didn't know how to do that. My mother knew how to love me, but I, did, I hated myself. There were times toward, you know, the end of my drinking and using that I would walk by places and I'd catch an image of me. And I'd say, you no good, dirty, rotten MF. I, I didn't, I, I, I grew a beard because I didn't like shaving. I had to look myself in the mirror. And so, but he told me I had to learn how to love myself. And I said, hmm, hmm, makes sense, makes sense. But getting that nine-month, 90-day uh, yeah, chip was very important. I got to 87 days. And that's why I had to change my sobriety date. It isn't 1993 because it kept going back out early on. And so if that's happened to you, keep coming back, okay? Because remember, your choices are jails, institution, death, or a new freedom and a new happiness. And oddly enough, to some alcoholics, and if you're like me, jails, institution, and death, your committee will tell you that's better than a new freedom and a new happiness. Does that make sense? Now, that's why it's, in, it's insane, we're going to make it better this time, Rex. Okay? Hey, we got your back. You know? And it's a lie. You know, this is where the new freedom and happiness is. It's in sobriety. So, you know, they, at 87 days, I came back from Maine. My brother's president of Time Warner Cable out there. He's a Fortune 500 executive. And guess what I am? I'm a loser living at home, almost 40 years old. No job. I'm on disability. And my brother's living in this 5,000-square-foot house. He's got Corvettes and everything. I feel about that big. So guess what I did? I had a pity party. I came home and got loaded one more time. And I had one of those spiritual awakenings. Kid you not. Because the young lady that uh, was with me at that time, those old computer screens, those old green ones, remember? <laughs> She happened to say, um, as we were enjoying ourselves, so to speak, you know they can see and hear us through that thing. <laughs> and I said, this is what life has come down to. And then at the same time, there was this new committee called AA. And the AA committee was saying, keep coming back, Rex. And uh, it would say all these AA expressions. And I was like, yeah, man, this AA thing has messed up my partying. And what I didn't realize, it was already over, but the message was starting to come through. And so I went to I went to the regular meetings of this Tuesday night meeting over at this Lutheran church, and they called me up to, to share. And I said, ah, sobriety's wonderful, everything's going great. It's like Got 90 days coming up here is wonderful. What I didn't tell him is that I had gotten loaded. And I remember that incomprehensible demoralization. I couldn't be honest. And so for about five days, you know, the AA committee and, and 
what I call God started speaking to me is like, yeah, you got to get real. You got to get honest with yourself. Otherwise, you're not going to get this. And so I was very fortunate that I was able to go into the confessional with another priest, Father Michael. And Father Michael knew about AA. And I was telling him what happened. He says, well, I understand this AA thing is about rigorous honesty. Hmm. Okay. So I went to, that was a Saturday afternoon. I was at the Sunday morning meeting. I'm a newcomer. And there was a new freedom and a new happiness. That's when my recovery started. And since then, you know, I remember that one-year chip, and it was just like uh, Martin Luther King was right there saying, free at last, free at last, you know. But it, but that was just the beginning. One year, it's like it's a journey. This sobriety thing is a journey. And what I'm here to tell you tonight is that if you're struggling with your life, life sucks, you don't like it, and you know, you're know you here for whatever reason or another, you're here for a good reason because this is what I rejected, and yet it saved me. Program of AA. God showed me people who could show me how it works. And my religious experience, which I'm not putting down at all, it the people couldn't tell me how it works. They didn't have a program for me. And what I found is that for somebody like me, God had a program for me, the 12 steps and 12 traditions, and it worked. And then all of a sudden, glimpses of serenity came in. And I wasn't so pissed off all the time. Okay? I'm only pissed off about 80% of the time now. (laughs) Only kidding. I have a great life today. And so I still go to meetings. I go to meetings five days a week with a small group. It's called the Dawn Patrol. We meet at 6.30 in a meeting. It's a Bill Sees movie, uh, movie uh, meeting. And I've been studying this book now for 13 years. You'd think I'd be an expert on it. And I keep learning things from it. And uh, it's a, I call them the Gone Patrol because I take everybody's inventory, and they're all gone to me. Um, but uh, I've gotten through my mother leaving and passing on. And she passed on real quick. She got stomach cancer, and she was gone six months later. I wasn't quite ready for that. That was a tough one. But the people in my group were there. And when I looked out at that funeral service and I saw my AA friends, those were the faces that I saw. I didn't even recognize my relatives. But I rem- all those AA people were my family. And they helped me get me through that. So the life of sobriety is life on life's terms. It'll be all these things, and you know what? It's not worth drinking over. Why? Because this life is much better. I'll take this life. And somebody told me back then, what do you want out of sobriety? Back then, I just wanted the craziness to go away, and I wanted to be a good father. And I got so much more. I got friends. You know, I got respect. You know, I go around the community now, and I feel good walking around. And I actually shave because I can look at myself in, in the mirror. And so it's a wonderful opportunity to live life on life's terms. doesn't mean that I'm always happy with it, but I can deal with it. 
It's like right now I have what they call lower spinal stenosis, and I need. I had surgery a year ago on my back. I've had three cervical neck surgeries. I've had knee replacement on both knees, something like nine or ten operations, and I'm going to have a, according to my neurosurgeon who I saw on Tuesday, he says your spine's so messed up, you're going to be dealing with this the rest of your life. And you know what, the committee's still there. It's saying, oh, you know, it's like medical marijuana just would be wonderful. <laughs> They take care of that chronic pain, Rex. And those thoughts don't go away. Unfortunately, it's like uh, I always have this addictive behavior, but it's just like I told my son. I said, we have this in our family. Find addictions that won't kill you. Get hooked on AA. That's what I did. I got hooked. You know, people say, I used to drink a use. Now I'm hooked on AA. I was like, that sucks. And... And it's actually, it's wonderful. It's like, listen, look at the laughter in this, listen to the laughter in this room, the genuine laughter. Most of us doing what we used to do, I mean, it was a different kind of laughter, but I tell you what, this, you're going to remember what you did, and you got real friends, you got people that love you. I believe, you know, the love of God is in this room because we care for each other. And that's magic. That's magic. You can't get that anywhere else. We're the most unique society in the whole world. You know, because we have a deadly disease, and for a buck a meeting, we get reprieved from it. It's fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. So, you know, I still have uh, alcoholic thinking. I think I'll have that to the day I die. But I'll take this life, and I'll take the fact that today I can walk through the supermarket. I can walk anywhere, and people don't say, that's Rex the alcoholic. Before, they could identify me because I looked there, I looked apart. But today, I'm invisible in society. I'm just another bozo on the bus. I get to walk around, and I get to enjoy this new freedom and new happiness. And it is being free. I liken addiction to being a slave on the plantation. And I don't want to be that. I don't need to be a sharecropper. I need, you know, the dignity and respect from being uh, one of God's creatures that he didn't make a mistake with. And because of you people, you know, that's why I'm sober today. Somebody gave me love. Somebody helped me through this. Somebody showed me this is how you take the steps. I couldn't do it by myself because if I did, I would have done it. And so you can't do this alone. I'm saying this to anybody who's new. You can't do this alone. Don't try to do it alone. And so with that, I want to say that, you know, I'm grateful for my son, my five little grandkids who were adopted. I've got one that just turned five, and she's a fetal alcohol heroin addicted baby that was adopted and she's the love of my life along, along with four other little special needs kids and grandpapa wants to live today because life is worth living before i couldn't say that i want to thank you for the opportunity to come and share my story i wish you all wonderful sobriety and whatever you do keep coming back